0: Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello and welcome to Read Smart, the official Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast with me, Razia Iqbal. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. And in this episode, we're going to be hearing about the much anticipated long list, which was announced on the 10th of September with 13 books on the list. And we're going to be talking about this brilliant and diverse list of non-fiction book by book with three of this year's judges. Before all of that, for those who haven't heard the list, here it is again. One, two, three, four, The Beatles in Time by Craig Brown. Labours of Love, The Crisis of Care by Madeleine Bunting. Dear Life by Rachel Clarke. The Idea of the Brain, A History by Matthew Cobb. Eat the Buddha, the story of modern Tibet through the people of one town, Barbara Demick, The Lives of Lucian Freud, Fame, 1968 to 2011, that's part two by Bill Fever, Black Spartacus, The Epic Life of Toussaint L'Ouverture by Sudhir Singh, our Bodies, Their Battlefield, What War Does to Women by Christina Lamb, Diary of a Young Naturalist, Dara McNulty, Those Who Forget, One Family's Story, A Memoir, A History, A Warning by Geraldine Schwartz, Stranger in the Shogun City, A Woman's Life in 19th Century Japan by Amy Stanley, The Haunting of Alma Fielding, A True Ghost Story by Kate Summerscale. Square Haunting, Five Women, Freedom and London Between the Wars, and that's by Francesca Wade. I'm sure some of you have heard of some of these books, but we are going to uh, go through the list book by book, and I'm pleased to welcome fellow BBC presenter, professor and author Shahida Bari, New Statesman writer Leah Robson, and journalist and author B Wilson to the podcast. Welcome to all three of you. Let's start with the first one on that list, one, two, three, four, The Beat. Beatles In Time by Craig Brown. I, I mean, it does feel to me that um, the Beatles have continued to exert this hold on on the cultural consciousness of this uh, uh, of this country, and in fact, the world. And one wonders what new there is to say about this. Uh, Leah Robson, uh, how did this strike you?
1: Yeah, I don't know whether Craig Brown's necessarily trying to say anything specifically new about the Beatles, but he's taken a new approach. He he, he divides their story which is told roughly chronologically into about 160 vignettes and um they take curious forms so sometimes he'll talk just about all the times or interactions they had say with the playwright now or coward or the period that paul mccartney lived with jane ash's family near harley street so it's a kind of sidelong approach to a story that people may know but i i think it sort of makes it it's a kind of kaleidoscopic thing, and it's more than the sum of its parts. And so, I think that, like, even if it is the umpteenth book on this subject, you can see why he felt justified in adding to the pile.
0: B. Wilson, did you enjoy this uh, kaleidoscopic biography of the Fab Four? Oh my word, I enjoyed it so
2: much. I can't describe what a joy it is, page by page. I felt every page said something new about the Beatles, and it's partly—I mean, the title is deceptively simple but every page is reiterating this theme that each of these men by themselves couldn't have become the Beatles like Paul is too jaunty George is too morose John is too difficult Ringo's just Ringo but the four of them together plus Brian Epstein created this magic the likes of which the world has never seen and there are all these wonderful little counterfactual moments like what if Paul had to managed to pass his Latin exam in 1957. The Beatles would never have happened because it had been moved up a year at school and he wouldn't have become friends with this younger boy called George Harrison. And there is all these little moments like that where it just it just feels like he's giving you these little bits of magic, which whether you're a Beatles fan or not, it's just social history at its best.
0: No, I... I was just going to say, I mean, it sounds as though it's a a musical history as well as a social one. Leo, were there specific things about the kind of social context in which they were growing up that that really struck you?
1: Uh, I mean, he's really good on on the kind of well-travelled moments of that, the Beatles' repeated visits to Hamburg and the sort of Skipple scene and everything that they were um, sort of part of or adjacent to um, in, the, in the later 50s and, I suppose, very early 60s. So he's just he's brilliant on, on detail. He, he also puts himself in the book a little bit as a kind of um, tourist, I suppose, of the Beatles' Liverpool. So uh, I, I kind of feel like the grain of their experience, especially in the early years, is a, is a big part of what he's trying to evoke.
0: Mm. So, sounds like uh, it's one definitely uh, worth reading um, because even even though, as you say, Leo, that it, it may not be bringing uh, specifically new things, but how he deals with the subject matter is is really important and it's uh, made it onto the long list. Let's move on to Shahida uh, talking about labours of love, the crisis of care by Madeline Bunting. Uh, caseworkers, care homes, obviously in the spotlight with COVID-19. Give us a little bit of a, uh, the background to, to Madeline Bunting wanting, to write this book and, and what it's about?
3: Well, some people will know Madeline Bunting as a very familiar journalist, largely for The Guardian. And this is, in many ways, an exemplary piece of investigative journalism. But it's also much more than that. It is conscientiously researched. Bunting has clearly spent so much time in hospital wards, in care homes, talking to social care workers, patients, families, as well as policymakers. But This is more than just journalism. It's so noble. It's an absolutely immersive study. And she reflects on her own experiences as a carer. And I, I take it to be a really deeply humane piece of work about people, about the people who are often unequally tasked with the work of care. And she's committed to them. It's a polemical book about austerity and the welfare state and ageing populations and she's really great on the place of the disabled in a, in a just and caring society but, it, but it's deep and humane as well as just a, a, a form of kind of journalistic study.
0: And, and is it is it strung together with kind of specific stories of characters? Is that how we learn about the way in which uh, care workers and, and, and care homes and the system works?
3: Well yes that word system, we often think about the NHS certainly as a system and we talk about the welfare state as a system but Bunting is dealing with people she's talking to nurses and what, some of the most powerful stuff is about her own reflections being a mother juggling work and caring duties I, I, I think it's such a particular and specific form of work from her and timeliness isn't one of the the named benchmarks by which we judge this price this this prize and and often we're looking for timeless works but but I think this is both of those things it it will speak to our COVID-19 times but it's clearly the product of, of, of much longer reflection about the crisis in our hospitals and our care homes and systemic flaws and inequalities. It's really powerfully researched and powerfully argued.
0: Mm. Well, let's uh, let's stay with you, Shahida, and talk about the next book, Rachel Clark's uh, "Dear Life," because th- this deals with um, palliative care. And and Rachel Clark is um, is a is a doctor who worked on the front line and then chose to do uh, to do something really quite different. And and that again was prompted by something personal for her.
3: Yeah, it's hard not to be moved by this book. That the subtitle of the book, the book is "Dear Life," and the subtitle is a doctor's story of of love and loss. And as you say, Dr. Rachel Clark specializes in palliative end of life care. I keep joking that I loved this book to death, which is not a funny joke. It it is a book about death, but it isn't a solemn book. It has a real gentleness. And an inquiring quality that makes it feel less bleak than that. It's about her training. She writes about the way our medical system works, about her colleagues, and very um, personally about her father, who is diagnosed with terminal cancer over the course of the book. And she, I mean, I mean, medical memoir has become a really familiar gen- genre to us, and is often done really well. But I think this is quite distinctive.
0: Hmm. I mean, I, I I wonder about the um, the importance currently as well about talking about dying and and that that we we often don't and culturally it's a really difficult area for us to explore.
3: Yeah, she has um, obviously she has real candor about this and but also she's candid about the difficulty of it. Even as a, a, a practicing doctor working in palliative care, how hard it is to confront life and death, and of course. If you're reading this book now, so many of us are confronting the matter of life and death for the for the first time. Many of us, because of the, this pandemic, and I think that means that this book might mean something. Really, mean something to many people who read it. Um, I think the thing I take from it is that it's you understand how impossible it is to be in the business of caring for the end of life, as Dr. Clark is without also being a human being yourself, too, and feeling it. Is it also a,
0: a, a book that's full of individual characters and stories of the people that she has met and, and perhaps even cared for?
3: Yeah, I, I mean, in some ways, it, it, I, that would make it sound like it resembles the Bunting book, and they certainly have things in common, but they have such a different tenor a different tone um but yeah I I think she talks about her patients she talks about her colleagues she talks about her father and the 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 other character in the book not to talk about it as though it's a piece of fiction but it's her she is this intelligent analytical person who is unashamedly emotional and literary and you have a real sense of her hinterland. She she quotes Sylvia Plath and Susan Sontag and Elastica and Bob Dylan. So there's something really special happening here about this real person dealing with real people on the front line of our healthcare system. Mm.
0: Let's uh, let's move on to Matthew Cobb's book, uh, The Idea of the Brain, A History. Uh, Leo, let's uh, get you to just uh, outline uh, what Matthew Cobb's doing here.
1: Yeah, Matthew Cobb is basically tracing the history of investigations of the subject. So it's a book about the brain, but it's also a bit of a book about the way in which the brain has been sort of, I, I suppose defined described narrativized always always within a scientific or primarily within a scientific com- context not kind of uh metaphor and so on uh, and he's a he's a specialist in the area but it's kind of a strangely rollicking book really um you know one of the things we were looking for in this prize was literary merit and um sort of you know readerly impact and a book on this subject which sounds a little bit well i i suppose that it might be quite challenging he, he's done an amazing job of turning it into drama
0: oh wow how does he do that
2: well you just learn so much from it i mean the, the human brain is a subject that we all have an interest in and he does such a good job of debunking these things that i think most of us sort of have lodged somewhere like things like there are lots of different parts of our brains for each executive function and then he shows no that's not true actually things are much more diffuse across the whole brain but as Leo was saying I mean the way that he shows that throughout history people have come up with these different metaphors for the brain depending on the particular states of contemporary society so now we're obsessed with the idea of brain as computer but actually that's just as limited as the kind of metaphors people had in the 18th century where they thought the brain was a machine And now we're kind of moving to the idea of the brain at a cellular level, but probably in the future we'll refine our knowledge still further. There's just something weirdly fascinating the whole time you're reading this book, thinking, oh, I couldn't be reading this book about the brain without my own brain. (laughs) You're having an out-of-body experience sometimes.
0: Is there also a sense that you know, given that, that that it's called the idea of the brain a history, that there is a kind of chronicling of um, those scientists who have added to our understanding of the brain over the years?
1: Yeah, I mean it's 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 compendious, and I suppose being a exercise in in the history of science, it obviously tells you about a lot of things that have been superseded. But as B was saying, it's sort of clear why they resonated at that particular time or why they would have made sense at that particular time he's also really interesting in bringing in um anatomy of other animals and so on so while we're in our heads thinking about what our heads mean and using metaphor and so on he also kind of broadens the analysis in that way
0: let, let's move on to the next one, uh, a book by Barbara Demick, uh, a journalist with an extraordinary reputation. The book is called Eat the Buddha, the story of modern Tibet through the people of, of one town. Uh, B, let's uh, let's hear from you what, uh, what struck you about this book.
2: This was an amazing book um, for many reasons, one of which is that I think we have all of these ideas of Tibet in our head. It's a land of yaks, it's a land of oppression, it's a land of Buddhist monks. But what Barbara Demick has done is spent so much time in this one particular town in Tibet. She just gives you a sense of what people's lives are actually like at an individual level, whether it's a schoolteacher who starts off as a perfectly normal, conventional man teaching middle school and ends up almost accidentally becoming a radical dissident who finds himself in the dead of night putting up posters saying, free Tibet, or whether it's the whole rash of people Um, committing self-immolation out of utter desperation. But she gives you these wonderful senses of juxtaposition. So on the one hand, modern Tibet is the place where people wear blue jeans, they use iPhones. On the other hand, they are constantly living under oppression and a lack of freedom. And she quotes some guy in the final chapter who's a Tibetan businessman who says, I have two homes, I have multiple phones, I have cars. What I don't have is my own freedom.
0: Oh, that's pretty powerful. Uh, th- it, she, is, um, she is known as a, a journalist who is interested in deep research. And, and this sounds like a book where you said that she spent a lot of time there. This just sounds like a book that, that is absolutely rooted in, in the kind of solidity of, of having spoken to many, many people.
2: Mm, That's a really good way of putting it. There's a real modesty to the way that she writes. You're not feeling that she's coming across as some omniscient narrator. She's just allowing these voices to be heard. I,
0: I wonder about the writing of this as well, because Leah was saying that you know that that, that when in judging this prize, you're looking for a, a book that reads really well, that's going to be compelling, whatever the subject is. Uh, is this a book that that is is written really well? Because there is sometimes an an issue with journalists writing books that you just kind of go into just journalese too easily. It, I'm imagining, I've read one of other of, of her books, and I'm imagining she she would not do that. She really doesn't do that. It's history. It's beautifully written as well, that you
2: get a sense of the sounds, the smells, the textures of Tibet. You can sort of picture the, the butter and the tea that people are drinking. But at the same time, it's a deeply serious book. Um, and you come away from it thinking, I mean, just what a tragedy Tibet is. I mean, this place where... So many people were slaughtered, um, and it's still not free. Mm.
0: Sounds like definitely one that I I would like to read. Let's move on uh, and uh, go to Leo talking about Bill Fever's um, part two of The Lives of Lucian Freud, Fame, 1968 to 2011. Now, I've read the first part of this um, and and it really was uh, an extraordinary uh, book. And I I wonder about uh, the second part because it's probably the one that most people will know most about uh, Freud because the early years, you know, maybe people will just be learning things about him even though he's such a well-known figure how how rollicking a read is this one leo
1: this is a phenomenal book it's 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 very 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 enjoyable and as you say william fever has to engineer a kind of gear change in this book because in the first volume he wasn't writing about an international sensation you know we obviously remember Freud in the later years, you know, the extraordinary figures that he commanded and the extraordinarily famous people he painted and so on. Um, it, it's clear that, you know, that um, that was very much a product of the years that he's dealing with here, which is basically the last 30 or so years. No, 40 or so, sorry, 68 to 2011, isn't it? And um, and so, so it's a completely different thing. So suddenly Francis Bacon is feeling competitive with, Lucy and Freud, whereas before I presume he just viewed him as kind of second fiddler or kind of an irrelevance. He's watching with increasing nervousness as the prices tick up and up and up. And so it's a it's a book that's about um, Freud in a way. I mean, this is there's, there are many many strands. One is Freud handling his his new found fame, like he gets bothered by people, including photographers. He's got to handle the fact that he's painting Kate Moss. He has this new of gallerist agent, William Aquavella, who's making him to a much more internationally recognized figure. But all the while, and this is one of the books, one of the things that makes this book special, he's talking on the telephone, sometimes in um, person to William Fever, who's now the biographer. Now, obviously, that wasn't the case in parts of the book that took place in the 20s and 30s and 40s. But from the sort of 70s onwards, when he goes to interview for the Sunday Times, they talk for at least an hour a day. So Freud is a very, very living, kind of palpable presence in this book throughout.
0: Uh, I wonder also about the relationship between uh, Bill and, and Lucian, because they're obviously friends, even though he started out when he first met him, he was, he was going to interview him as a, as a journalist, but they've become friends. D- does Bill have the ability to be critical? Should he be? I mean, is that is that something that's required, or is this just a very particular access that he's got, which is really interesting?
1: Well, it's not, it's not a kind of biographical memoir. It's not a story of, of a friendship and so on. So I suppose he views those conversations as source material, you know, Freud on Bacon or Freud on his grandfather or Freud on his daughters, and he's using these things to construct his biography. In terms of does that inhibit his critical faculties on dealing with this man who he clearly worships? doesn't it doesn't really come up to be honest because he he clearly you can't write there's no such thing as a non-warts-and-all biography of Lucian Freud you know clearly he was a philanderer (laughs) a gambling uh incredibly opinionated and you know slightly foul-tempered and just a generally rather cantankerous person though he comes across as likable in the book I would say he probably errs on the side of you know not moralizing about And obviously it's strange to read the second volume of a biography in this way, because a lot of the psychology, at least the formative stuff, will you know, appears in the first 100 pages. And now we're at, you know, we start at page 600 and go to page 1100 or, or, or whatever. But I think it's, there's nothing overtly critical, you know, in it, but I also don't, I couldn't imagine that there are things that are kind of disguised from us because as, as I said before, it's sort of priced into the subject matter.
0: Mm, so so this is Bill's uh, second appearance on the long list and he was shortlisted uh, last year so we'll see we'll see what happens this time round um I expect he's very pleased to be on the long list. Uh, Black Spartacus, The Epic Life of Toussaint Louverture is next by Sudhir Haris Singh uh, and we're going to speak to B about this B uh, tell us first of all about those those people who don't know who Toussaint Louverture was just uh, put the put the book into context for us. Yeah, so part of the, one of the criteria that judges were looking at is
2: how meaningful is this book? And the fact that I'm having to explain who Toussaint Louverture is, is reason enough to have the book on the list. It's actually also a fantastic book in its own right by Sudhir Hazra Singh. Toussaint Louverture, um, amazing life, probably one of the most significant figures, not just in 18th century history, but in history altogether. Born a black slave, becomes emancipated, ends up Leading the slave revolt in Saint-Domingue, and if you look at the values of the French Revolution, which he was inspired by, you know, they have liberty and equality, but he adds to that the fraternity of black citizens, manages to become the governor of Saint-Domingue and then just leads such an action-packed life that it's kind of... Sudhir has Singh really has his work cut out just to fit it all in. He's a diplomat. He's constantly trying to ward off the British, trying to deal with the French. Um, He's a statesman. He's a brave warrior. He's a leader. He's a kind of mystery as well, because he's so good at kind of pulling the wool over his enemy's eyes. It's a truly, truly exciting work of history. You come away from it just thinking, Toussaint Louverture, what a man. We all need to have heard of him. <laughs> and it's also an astonishing work of archival research in order to tell the story of Toussaint Louverture. You know, Singh has to have been able to read multiple languages, go to multiple archives.
0: Mm. Wow, that, that sounds incredible. So he, see, he, really, he, he really has scoured archives in France, in Britain, the US and, and, and Spain, but not in, uh, of course, San Domingue's present-day Haiti, but not in Haiti itself.
3: I can uh, answer that question because I've been in love with Toussaint Louverture for 20 years, and now everybody else will once they read Hazra Singh's biography. And one of the remarkable things is that, you know, he's found amazing archives in all sorts of places, but he's also dealing with the fact that the the archive in Haiti was so scant and fragile, there's very little record there. So it's incredible detective work piecing this together. Um, he finds out things about great aunts and half sisters and, um, adopted children he pieces together this man's life and and as b said what a what a man he's handsome he's intelligent he's noble and good and one of the most brilliant military strategists of all time who who dies spoiler alert um in this most terrible bleak condition he he ends up imprisoned in the bowels of a cavernous french castle on a freezing mountainside um this somebody needs to make a film of this life Pronto! But in the meantime, you could read this incredibly well-researched and gripping book.
0: Well, perhaps they will once they once they have read the book. <laughs> um, let's uh, let's talk about Christina Lamb's book uh, next uh, with you, B. Our bodies, their battlefield: What war does to women. Uh, another book from a, a really remarkable journalist. Uh, t- tell us about this one.
2: Well, you need to be feeling very strong to read this one because the subject is war rape which is there's no subject more horrific but it's so important I mean she says near the beginning I'm writing a book about rape in war it's the cheapest weapon known to man it devastates families it turns young girls into outcasts and it's almost always ignored in the history books and what she does is she travels the world speaking to women and girls collecting their testimony and it kind of builds and builds and builds because her great theme is that you see over time that rape is not some horrible accidental thing that happens in an opportunist way afterwards. It's actually a weapon of war and it's used just as much by um, ISIS as it might be by the Buddhists of Burma. Um, and it's, it's this thing that's just, it's grotesque. It's ruins women's lives and then there's this silence about it i mean the final chapter shows you that there's there's almost total impunity for people who've committed these terrible crimes so i think it's a really really important book but page after page you do need to really brace yourself to keep going she does apologize at some point saying i'm really sorry i've subjected you to this but after all what we're subjected to as a reader is nothing compared to what the women themselves have suffered
0: yeah, I I mean I I I I know Christina a little bit and I've uh, I- interviewed Dennis Mc, uh, McWeygwe who won the Nobel Prize for his work to to end the use of sexual violence as a as a weapon of war um in in the DRC and and it just feels like this is a book that I don't really know why hasn't been written up until now given how far back this practice goes.
2: It's ancient and it travels across all continents. And I mean, Amal Clooney is quoted on the front as saying it's a wake up call. It really is. You just read this thinking, uh, all of us are familiar with little bits of the stories, like the Boko Haram Nigerian schoolgirls being kidnapped, or maybe the treatment of the Rohingya women, which was quite recent and vivid in our minds from 2017. But what this book does is just tie it all together and show it happens again and again and again. And nothing is done about it. It's such an important story and she tells it so well
0: does she also give us an uh, analysis as to why she thinks it it has been ignored because there have been you know the fact that 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 the Yazidi woman and Dennis McGregory won the Nobel prize for this particular work and Amal Clooney as you mentioned you know she was involved in defending the Yazidi women who were also uh, raped and 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 I I just wonder whether there is also an analysis of why it's ignored whether it's something that is uh, you know the systems that are in place in in legal terms that stop this from from having any kind of making any kind of impact that people are held accountable I mean I think
2: the explanation is really just that um misogyny I mean she does also say there's a lot of um at the end of the book she doesn't really tell this story but she says there's a lot of rape of boys and men by men which is a still more undocumented story if the book has a flaw I did really want a little bit more of a knitting together of how and why does this happen? How has it happened through history? What have the justifications been? But it's still an utterly incredible work of non-fiction. It stays with you for days afterwards.
0: It haunts your dreams. You
2: wish you hadn't read it, but you're glad that you did.
0: Mm. Uh, Let's uh, turn to you, Shahida, and talk about Dara McNulty's Diary of a Young Naturalist. Now, the backstory to this is quite extraordinary because this is a book uh, that's written by a 16-year-old. Tell us a little more.
3: Well, I I think this is perhaps the most unusual of our selection and we talked about it at great length um I I, and it's just won the um Wainwright prize for nature writing which endorses our judgment I think um but it's more than nature writing it's diary of a youth a young person um it's a young person with autism who's writing their very specific experience and again autism is one of those conditions that has been written about before um, we have much greater insight into it but every account is particular and precise and that That applies to this as well it 's a story about a a teenager being bullied at school, about leaving his childhood home and being uprooted and finding another home it 's about climate change and it 's the combination of all of these things this kaleidoscope that makes this a very particular and peculiar book. He has a real eye. I can see why the judges of the Wainwright Prize would elect him their winner. He, I don't know any teenagers who write about verdant lapis light illuminating a path through bluebells and hazels. He, he does that and he has the kind of innocence and romance of childhood as well as the knowledge of a naturalist.
0: And from what you've just just the tiny little snatch that you just uh, quoted, it sounds like he's a, a lyrical writer too. He
3: he he is. He he's and he's learning. That's the thing as well. He's learning prose style. And he talks about the the nature writers he loves and the poetry he's reading. And so you're walking with him as his as he's finding his voice. I think the thing that endures about this book that um is more than just the romance of youth and the um his dazzling eye is his urgency about climate change uh, about and about our ecological crisis there's frustration and anger the frustration of a young person living in a world where they don't feel like they have much control and that um has an effect of asking you what you're doing and whether you are living up to your responsibilities because I think this writer is trying to enact a certain kind of sense of responsibility they feel towards their world and that is a really enormous thing to take on and I admired it. And I think many people will do so. Mm,
0: sounds very impressive. And what an achievement to have got onto this long list uh, at the age of 16. Uh, B, let's uh, turn to you uh, to speak about uh, Geraldine Schwartz's book, Those Who Forget, One Family Story, A Memoir, A History, A Warning. Uh, tell us about this.
2: Well, so the judges considered a number of excellent books on the subject of, so related to the Holocaust, and we agonised a bit. But this one really stood out partly because it's telling the story of the Second World War and its aftermath in such an original way. So, so many of the stories we read about um, the Holocaust are stories of heroism, resistance, people who've survived concentration camps or people who've been part of the resistance movement in France. This is the opposite. This is about the ordinary Germans and French people who actually just went along with the Nazi regime or Vichy regime and who after the war continued to forget about it, profit from it, lead these normal lives without ever really giving a second thought to the suffering of the Jews. And there's something quite nonchalant shocking about it. It's Geraldine's family is dual citizenship. She has a German father, a French mother. And some of the scenes that really stuck with me were things like descriptions of going around to spend time having coffee and cake at her German granny's house, And then you suddenly notice that the dining room has all of this rather fine furniture, which doesn't seem in keeping with the family's income. And then you realise it's all been bought up cheap um, from the Jews who disappeared during the war. And it's it's full of these quietly chilling moments that actually evil happens more from ordinary people who just don't want to really recognise what's happened, who just want to sweep it under the carpet than it does necessarily from true monsters.
0: Uh, And does she talk in in the memoir about her her family's confrontation of this past or, or does that not happen? She does.
2: She beautifully interweaves the really varying reactions of people in her family from the grandparents generation who are just kind of getting silencing it to her father, who starts to question everything as a child, which she describes as being quite unusual for that generation in Germany. And she takes it all the way up to the present day and compares it to politics now and Donald Trump. And it is a kind of, as the um, subtitle says, a warning. She's trying to say, it is so easy for the truth just to be kind of swept aside not necessarily even by blatant lies, but just by people pretending that things never happen. It's kind of trying to say that what happened in post-war Germany is a kind of fake news of all our lecture. Mm.
0: And and what about, I mean, aside from Donald Trump, what about in Germany itself, the rise of the AFD? Yeah, I mean, half
2: of the book is about Germany, really. Half is about France. It's very nuanced on the kind of different reactions in Germany and France post-war. But the big theme is just... I'd always somehow naively believed that there was this burden of war guilt in Germany that everyone carried with them. And the big theme is this lack of guilt, the omerta, the code of silence. And in France too, where they somehow this whole myth of the resistance movement, and yet so few people ever participated in that. Another detail that really stayed with me is that um, she asks, how would Germans that had been kind of ordinary so called Nazis during the war, how could then they get away with not feeling more guilt after the war or not confronting what they'd allowed to happen to the Jews? And then she just has this line where she says, There were so few Jews who remained. There were five hundred thousand when the war started, only fifteen
0: thousand afterwards. Wow. Thank you for that. Uh, let's move on to uh, Stranger in the Shogun City, A Woman's Life in 19th Century Japan by
3: Amy Stanley. Uh, Shahida, tell us about this book. So so this is the book I started reading and about 30 pages in, I forgot that I was judging it. I forgot that it was non-fiction because I was so absorbed in the life of this young woman in 19th Century Japan. In fact, I had to stop and check that it was in fact non-fiction and not a completely absorbing novel. So it's about the life of this, the life and the pains and the ambitions and the desires of a young woman growing up in rural Japan. And she's called I think it's pronounced Seneno, and perhaps Amy Stanley can correct me, but she's born in 1804 and she belongs to a family who is tasked with the care of a Buddhist temple. And that means that the family is literate and they document and preserve every happening, every correspondence is kept. And so that means you get every detail about the foods they prepare for breakfast, the clothes. Oh, Razia, my God, the clothes, the (laughs) coats, the slippers, the blankets they have. So it means that Stanley has this remarkable archive about the everyday life of an ordinary woman in Japan. But of course, every ordinary woman is also extraordinary. And that's what you realise over the course of this book.
0: And what is it about her that's extraordinary? Is is there a sense that she was very much of her time or she was somebody who broke away from tradition?
3: Well, that's the thing. I think you realise that historical women are much like us, perhaps, in their desires and ambitions. She ends up marrying I think four times in her lifetime. At one at one point, she marries a, a a samurai, and then eventually she ends up in the service of a of a famous city magistrate. and And Stanley's prose encourages your empathy. I think that's her great skill, because you understand what it might mean for a woman in nineteenth century Japan to have had a series of failed marriages, the kind of stigma and rejection and defeat you might feel and the desires you might still have and that manifests in Seneno's case by her great ambition to get to a place called Edo or Edo which seems to be full of glittering possibilities for an independent and intelligent woman like her and so that the story becomes about this place about how places become cities how cities spring up and what drives people to them and the different Kinds of life and living that cities can enable. So it's a book that just grows, it expands, and it, it, it expands your world too. It, it, it feels like time travel. That book.
0: Mm, it sounds really wonderful. I know so little about Japan. I think that's definitely one that I that I feel drawn to. Uh, let's uh, move to uh, let's stay with you, Shahida, and move to Kate Summerscales' uh, "The Haunting of Alma Fielding: A True
3: Ghost Story." This is intriguing. It's terrifying too, Rezi, I should warn you. I, I scare very easily indeed. And the problem with Kate Summerskill, who's a former Bailey Giffords, maybe a Samuel Johnson prize winner, is that she writes so terrifyingly and compellingly. So even though you've got the most awful heebie-jeebies while you're reading this book, you have to keep going with the light on, probably. (laughs) So it's um, a non-fiction written with a kind of gothic verve and flavour, which we we know of her. And it's about the paranormal and the fascination with the paranormal and a young working-class woman called Alma Fielding, who seems to be troubled by a poltergeist. So things are flying across the room, light bulbs are breaking, doors are slamming, and she becomes the object of the attention of a society called the International Institute of Psychical Research, led by a very curious character called uh, Nandor Fodor, a Jewish Hungarian refugee. And it it expands from that paranormal exploration to be about many other things, about women and their bodies and anxieties, about um, trickery and power. And one of the most interesting things about this book is that I think it's about the desire to believe in some other power at a very precise moment in European history where where fascism is beginning to cast its shadow. So it's a terrifyingly compelling read with a punch. When you started describing it, it sounded so novelistic. I think that's what Summerscale does, is that she tricks you uh, into thinking it's a fiction. But also that's the ruse of the book, isn't it? That is this woman tricking us is this a fiction or is this really some manifestation of a paranormal power so there's something a nice doubling about the kind of fictional quality of Kate Summerschool's writing and also the kind of trickery that Alma Fielding may or may not be um, executing or, or um, amongst uh, her, her her investigators mm. it, it's really spooky though i um, precisely because it's a nonfiction book that sounds sounds really
0: really interesting, uh, Leo. I hope you're still with us. We're going to turn to you now for uh, "Square Haunting: Five Women, Freedom, and London Between the Wars" by Francesca Wade. So this is a this is a biography of a group biography of several several women. Tell us tell us about this one.
1: Yes, you're right. It, it, it is it's a group biography certainly, but I suppose it differs from a lot of entries in that form um, in that it's not seeking to portray one thing through different people, which is just the model of uh, prosopography. You know, you take, a, you take an era and you do it through certain people, or you might do, like, bright young things in the 1920s. What Francesca Wade has done, really, is identified um, a common thread to five quite different people. And while we're in each case study, it's very much about that person. It's not about what it says about the other subject. It's not about what it contributes to an overall picture the one thing that overtly unites the women apart from being women of uh, of course and and they're all intellectuals of of, of a kind is that they spent time living in mecklenburg square in bloomsbury and that that's the um source of the title um square square horn thing and so she moves not really chronologically because when you look back over the book it would there would be overlapping chronologies but she does climax with Virginia Woolf at the Second World War um, and she starts with H.D. Hilda Doolittle, the poet um, so, you know, much earlier but, but all these stories move forward in time and often they require moving backwards in time to explain the women's origins and so on and, and what you get really is cumulatively you get a portrait of a time and a place which is London between the wars and they're just an incredibly vibrant intellectual world in which women were very gradually or, or, no, quite quickly, but very belatedly um, making their mark. So, um, uh, you know, um, there's Dorothy Sayers and Eileen Power, who was the professor of economic history at the LSE, as well as a medieval scholar. And there's an enormous uh, immersion in the scholarly communities or in Wolfe's case, the kind of, I suppose, bohemian literary communities that these people Emerged from um, or, or uh, were part of, but it's it's wonderfully readable. Um, it's it's a it's it's a beautifully written book. And as as I said before, while you're while you're in each of them, you're not really thinking so much about the larger picture. Like you retain the details, you know kind of roughly where you're going. But you're really with that person in that time. Um, there's no reference to other historians and this and that. You're really in that person's world, in their frame of reference, and their milieu and everything and it's um so it's it, it is a group biography and a work of cultural history but it's also just a just a brilliant sort of serial piece of evocation
0: mm, sounds like a square that uh, i would have liked to have lived in but only as an observer it sounds incredibly intimidating as well in each of those cases of those intimidating really.
1: and, and increasingly dangerous as well as, as as 1939 became 1940 um and so on
0: Leo Robson, thank you very much. And my thanks to Shahida Bari and uh, to B Wilson. Just before you go, though, I just want to get some sense from you about the judging process, because this is an incredibly huge endeavour that you have um, uh, taken on. I mean, it's, you know, something like 200 books and you've had to distill down to 13. Uh, Let's start with you, Leo. Um, How how did that all feel?
1: Um, Well... It obviously is imposing, and you know whether the books arrive through your uh, on, sorry, onto your doorstep or as PDFs or whatever you know you're going to be confronting a lot of stuff and obviously some of this, some of the things are things you would want to read anyway, some of them are well beyond your area of expertise or previous enthusiasm uh, and it, so yeah it's uh it's a it's a long summer but uh it's it's an, also an amazing experience um you know we we've ended up with thirteen books, but obviously all of us love many other books that are not included in this 13 and so yeah it's, you know it's sort of I suppose um, the, the you know fear turns to joy quite quickly.
0: Shahida Abari what about you I mean I, I remember judging this prize and I just felt so overwhelmed by it at times and then you know would be would move through being overwhelmed and being full of joy and being so excited that I was learning things all the time.
3: Oh, oh, I want to know your tips about how we cope with it, because it's not going to let up. Now we have to go back to our short list, our long list rather, of 13. Um, I've just been rereading the Craig Brown, and there's a line where he recounts that the, the nightclub owners in Hamburg um, calling the Beatles the pedals and how pedals means little willies in German, and it, which is hilarious. And it's just reminding me the, the, of the joy of being part of this process. Um, so many of the books are serious and important, but lots of them have had levity as well. And its I can't pretend it's not been just this immense pleasure and privilege to to get to read and then talk to really clever people about what they think about those books. And in the end, you just hope that you do them justice and that you honour the books and the writers.
0: Well, you've certainly, all three of you, um, honoured the books and the writers in this conversation. Shahida Abari, Leah Robson and B Wilson, thanks uh, to all three of you. I look forward to uh, seeing what you do with The Long List and how you shape that into six In the shortlist, that's going to be a very, very tough job, I think. Thank you very much for joining us today. That's all we've got time for. Do please join us next time for our shortlist episode. To keep up to date with the latest news about the prize, please follow at BGPrize on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And you can also sign up for the newsletter through the website. The 2020 shortlist will be announced on the 15th of October. The winner of the prize this year will be announced on the 24th of November. My thanks to the Blavatnik Family Foundation for their continued support of this podcast. Until the next time, bye bye. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.